North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bag full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details. Blog Talk Radio. What's up, everyone? Dr. Low Radio is back. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a couple of weeks since our last show. Most of you know me, but for those of you who don't, my full name is Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm a naturopathic doctor, which means that I'm a holistic doctor trained in natural medicine as well as conventional medicine. My specialty is mostly in digestive disorders, but I see all types of conditions, both in my local practice in San Diego and consulting practice with out-of-state and out-of-the-country patients. Hopefully, you're all enjoying your summer and getting some sunshine. I'm actually on location right now in scorching hot Colorado. I'm here for my mom's birthday, and I won't say how young she is because she probably wouldn't appreciate that, but she looks dang good still, and it's really nice to be here with the family. I am super excited about the show tonight. We have a very special guest joining us. I have knots in my stomach, actually, because I've been anticipating the show for a while, and I know he has a pretty large online following, so I'm getting a little bit of stage fright, but it's all good. I will actually introduce our guest in just a second, but first I want to give you a few announcements. The Run, that is a an event that I have announced um, on previous shows, and the event has now begun. It's a naturopathic doctor and his family who are running across the United States from San Francisco all the way to Connecticut to raise awareness for natural medicine. Desperate co- times call for desperate measures, and as you know, our, he- our health care is definitely not working and something d- desperately needs to be done. Your support is needed both in spreading the word and in volunteering and, of course, financial support. To follow the progress over the next three months, and that's how long they're running, and get involved, visit therun.org. Next week's show, mark your calendars, it's all about vaccinations, and that's with the awesome Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. She's an expert in vaccinations, very excited to have her on the show. She's written a couple of popular books, one of them including uh, Saying No to Vaccines, and I'm actually already taking questions for the, for the show because I know they're going to pile up, so if you'd like to submit a question, visit the website, drlaurennoel.com. Now, on for the topic for tonight's show. Tonight's topic actually pertains to me personally. Um, I wrote a blog yesterday on my website, and I had a, um, a personal health journey of my own that I was very sick for a long, long time. I have a very similar story to our guest tonight. Um, in high school, I was a lot heavier than I am now. I was 30 pounds heavier. I had acne, um, anxiety, depression, menstrual problems, muscle pain, digestive problems, you name it. And, you know, it wasn't until I found naturopathic medicine and also really fine-tuned my diet, took out the allergens out of my diet, that I really find, did I really find, um, you know, vibrant health again. I mean, I'm so much healthier than I was then, and I attribute a lot of that. I took the significant portion of that to my diet. And uh, the, the diet we're going to be talking about tonight is naturally free of those allergens, and it's really how we're genetically designed to eat. Um, so joining me tonight is an expert in that area, uh, Rob Wolf is in the building. He is a New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Solution. He's a former research biochemist, a former student of Professor Lauren Cordain, and he's one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. Wolf has transformed the lives of tens of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast and wildly popular seminar series. And to learn more about him, definitely check out his website, robwolf.com. Rob, are you with us? I'm, I'm here. How how can you be nervous when I'm nervous? Well, I, I'm the one nervous. that's nervous today. Yeah, yeah. 
So I'm nervous for you. Are you really nervous? Oh, yeah. Like, I usually don't get, get uh, spun up, but uh, I, I don't know why, but I, I had some uh, I had some butterflies over this one. We have so hitters. Hopefully well, I don't, don't drop the ball on it. No, definitely not. I'm I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I was listening to some previous shows you've done on, on – um, other shows and it's just you know you're you're fun to interview and um by the way sean says hi i talked to him earlier today so cool. <laughs> from underground he's wellness he's awesome a yeah. huge uh, sean croxton fan so howdy to sean yeah likewise rob you have quite the story um you, you know it's funny how a lot of times the things that we specialize in are things that we were once afflicted with ourselves and that's definitely true for you can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to be where you are now well, you know, I, I started off, I you know, I think kind of standard American kid. I, I got into powerlifting, got into athletics. It was eating kind of a, you know, bodybuilder, uh, powerlifting-type diet, high-carb, high-protein. Uh, became a California State powerlifting champion back in the early 90s after uh, graduating high school. And was pretty healthy, I guess, by most standards, but both of my parents had diabetes, had heart disease, had what I now understand to be uh, some massive systemic inflammatory issues that were, you know, kind of peri-autoimmune that eventually became autoimmune. And being a kid of, like, kind of the mid-'80s, early-'90s and being a little bit, you know, kind of counterculture-oriented, I I was always looking for something different. And I I definitely had a sense that if I ate and lived in a, a way that was different than my parents, that I could be much healthier than, than my parents. Like from the earliest rememberings I have, both parents were in and out of the hospital. My mom had her gallbladder removed. You know, I mean, just a host of problems. So it, over the course of time, I, I kind of transitioned from my, my kind of high-carb, high-protein bodybuilder-type diet into a higher-carb, lower-fat, lower-protein vegetarian diet, and then eventually into a vegan-type type diet. I started getting really big into macrobiotics, went to the Georgia Shower Macrobiotic Institute, started studying uh, Ayurveda, did a ton of Chinese medicine, actually did a year of naturopathic medicine at at Pasteur University, (laughs) which is kind of all all over this stuff. But the the interesting thing was that intellectually I was very wed to this approach, this way of eating, you know, for a lot of reasons. Like there were some kind of morality reasons woven into like consuming animals and stuff like that and sustainability And then also I I definitely had this sense that a a high-carb, low-fat, you know, vegetarian or vegan diet was like the healthiest way that you could possibly eat. But the interesting thing was that I went from a pretty lean, muscular, like 185 pounds, and over the course of about two years transitioning from vegetarian to vegan, went from 185 pounds down to eventually about 140 pounds. And I was still eating the same amount of food. I was still trying to maintain my my kickboxing and my my powerlifting regimen, but – as you know, as a naturopath, like, basically I was absorbing no nutrients. I mean, that's the only way that you can put, the, you know, 4,000 calories a day of food down your pie hole and lose weight, you know, is that you're just simply not absorbing this food. And then it was kind of an interesting event. My mom, who had been sick for a long time, she actually became really, really sick, went into the hospital with what the doctors were, were calling, you know, this, this systemic inflammatory just kind of flare and her heart and lungs were being attacked by her immune system. And what we now know is that she had these interrelated diseases of lupus, multiple sclerosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but they were mainly focusing the autoimmune element of this, this attack on her heart and lungs. And she very nearly died. Uh, they had to, you know, dose her up with methotrexate and really heavy-duty anti-inflammatories, barely managed to save her life. 
and through the course of some lab work, they figured out that my mom was wickedly gluten intolerant and had a disease mm-hmm. called celiac, and that she was also intolerant to virtually all all legumes. And and she also had some pretty high reactivity to like rice, and I mean basically she reacted to grains, legumes, and dairy. And mm-hmm. and so you know obviously I was relieved that my mom didn't die. It was a really kind of touch-and-go scenario, but when I talked to my mom on the phone, she was describing what the doctor had set her up with, which was lean meats, a little bit of fruit, some veggies, some good fats like coconut and stuff like that, and no grains, no legumes, no dairy, just just done. At least that's what the prescription was. Unfortunately, my mom complies only enough to not die and not actually be, be healthy and thrive, but that, that's a whole other thing that I've spent a lot of money on therapy about, so that, that's a whole other topic, but it, it's... Uh, you know, when I was listening to my mom describe this, I was like, no grains, no legumes, no dairy. Well, you know, what the heck do you eat if, if that's the case? And being vegan at that time, I obviously wasn't eating dairy, but, you know, the no grain, no legume deal was just kind of like, wow, this is crazy. What, what's there left to eat? And I, I literally, I was, I was living in Seattle at the time. I was sitting outside. It was kind of an uncharacteristically sunny day. And I just kind of looked out across the sound, uh, and I was kind of thinking, okay, what do you eat before agriculture? You know, what, what was there? And then it just popped into my, my head, this whole concept of the paleo diet. I'd heard about it, uh, paleo diet concept in the past, this idea of, you know, maybe if you ate like our, our uh, paleolithic ancestors, our caveman ancestors, that there would be some health benefits with this. And this is around 1998, so I went into the house, booted up my computer, uh, waited for the dial-up to, to, you know, get up and going, popped into this, this new search engine called Google, uh, this term paleolithic diet. And I found these guys, Lauren Cordain, Art Devaney. And at that time, that was really about all that there was on the Internet, but it was really interesting. It described everything that I had going on. It, when I was sick, I had ulcerative colitis, high blood pressure, uh, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, I mean, like a, a, a list of 10 different poop-related, you know, horrific things, and I had systemic inflammation and pain that, like, if I just laid on the bed, it hurt both on the front and the back side of me. Like, I was inflamed like you just cannot believe. And so everything that I was reading that, that these guys were talking about related to a paleolithic diet was that, you know, grains and legumes have these anti-nutrients that can damage the gut lining and can lead to systemic inflammation. Uh, this uh, systemic inflammation then can lead into uh, uh, metabolic derangement like type 2 diabetes and on and on and on. So all this stuff made a lot of sense, but it was really kind of a leap of faith to, to change gears in what I was doing because emotionally I was wedded to this idea of, you know, particularly this kind of moral kind of underpinning of this vegan type approach but, I mean, in all reality, it was killing me. Like, it may work for someone else, but it absolutely was not working for me. And so I, I shifted gears, and, and literally within days, the signs and symptoms of my ulcerative colitis. The ulcerative colitis was so bad that they were playing around with the idea of a bowel resection at the age of 26, 27. So, like, I was really, really sick. And within a couple of days, the ulcerative colitis symptoms were gone. Within weeks, my sleep had normalized, the systemic inflammation was gone, the systemic pain was gone, the depression was gone, um, moving back to a sunny climate so that I had sun really, <laughs> really helped all that stuff. But, I mean, that, that you know, probably a little bit longer than what I, I meant to uh, detail on that, but that's really my story of how I got exposed to this. And I, I ended up doing research uh, related to autoimmunity and cancer kind of around this paleo diet concept and lipid metabolism for about six years. 
then I, I kind of realized that I missed being around people. I'm, I'm definitely a very big people person, and I had the wacky idea of moving to Chico, California, where I did my undergraduate degree, and I opened a gym, and I used this paleo diet concept to help our clients, and eventually the gym became uh, uh, one of men's health top 30 gyms in America. My book made New York Times bestseller. Uh, we're averaging about four to five million unique visits uh, a week, the pod or a month. The podcast gets about 150,000 downloads a week, and I don't say any of this stuff to brag at all. It is just 100% a story of like I've just been sending out this message, kind of like SETI in reverse. SETI is like the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we have these parabolic dishes listening to the night sky, trying to see if there are extraterrestrials out there. And I, I was doing something different. I would write about paleo and type 1 diabetes, and I would just ship it out to the Internet, and then I would get responses from people. And over the course of time, the bandwidth has just grown, and people have compared notes. And so, like, the, the totality of the success that I've had has just been because I've shared this story of, like, an evolutionary biology approach to living, get more sleep, get more exercise, uh, have more socialization, and then, you know, try to emulate something that looks somewhat like a, a paleo-type diet, and that you'll probably – look, feel, and perform really well, and we could track biomarkers of health and disease and see them go in a really favorable direction. And so wow, that, I love that, it. That literally is the whole story, you know. I love it. And and the, the cool thing is, is you use this with your clients who are coming in thinking they're just going to lose some weight you know, do some fitness, but you you address the diet portion. It's it's more than just helping them lose, lose weight. You're actually decreasing the inflammation so much that their health is vastly improving. Oh, yeah. I mean, our, our gym is literally a smoke and mirror set up to get people to sleep and to eat properly. Like, and then the exercise is just like, yeah, 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 whatever. Okay, fine. We're, we're exercising, you know. And obviously exercise is good for folks. They, they need that. But the, the really compelling changes are decreasing stress, getting that, that hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis kind of, kind of revamped and getting people sleeping and then minimizing these gut irritants and these systemic inflammatory products that are, are just kind of part and parcel with our, our modern life. And then if we dose in just a little exercise with that, people lose weight, they reverse type 2 diabetes, they, you know, they get pregnant. All of this stuff that you want to have happen happens because you're just healthy. You know, it, it's uh, pulling in all the, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like shotgun art. You don't really know exactly which feature is the most important feature for the person, but we just cover all the bases. Maybe sleep is the most important point. Maybe it's sleep plus gluten intolerance that is like 90% of the issue. But whatever it is, at the end of the day, when folks adopt this way of eating and, and paying more attention to their sleep and modulating their, their stress and whatnot, they just get really healthy. And the interesting thing to me is that we have people now, like our gym's been open eight years. We have clients that we've had six going on seven years. And, you know, folks stick to it over the long haul. It's definitely not a fad. Mm-hmm. And why do they stick to it to the long haul? Because, you know, it's not the way we eat in our culture, but what does it do biochemically in their body that makes it something they can really stick with? Well, you know, I, I think part of it is just that they, they look, feel, and perform a lot better. And, and so there's that reward that, you know, they, they look better in their, their genes. They, they're cognitively, they're, they're more functional, so they do better at work or they're a better parent. And then they, you know, they just look better. But I think part of it, too, is that we have a very non-religious, non-fanatical approach to this. Like we, we encourage a really heavy-duty buy-in the first 30 days so that we can find out what food intolerances people have, 
you know, maybe you can tolerate some corn a couple of times a week. Maybe I can tolerate some rice a couple of times a week. I don't see anybody do well on gluten-containing products. Like, it's very, very rare. But that 30-day buy-in is pretty strict, pretty rigorous, but not so long that people just freak out and can't do it. But they end up feeling so much better that then they figure out some sort of like a, an 80-20 buy-in, you know, like Monday through Friday, they typically eat more or less what we would call paleo. You know, it's, it's uh, lean protein, seafood, fruits, vegetables, good fats, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the weekends, they kick their heels up. They might have some Mexican food with a lot for corn tortillas instead of flour tortillas. They might do some sushi, but they make sure to bring their, their gluten-free tamari sauce. Instead of having a chocolate cake, they might have a little bit of ice cream and dark chocolate and stuff like that. So it, it's definitely not an austere religious approach to eating. It's kind of an you know, 80-20 minimum investment, maximum return. And I think that that's a lot of why folks stick with it over the long haul. And when they do go off the rails and they, they kind of kick their heels up a little bit, they don't feel nearly as good. And then there's a little bit of that feedback of like, okay, yeah, I liked feeling good earlier in the week. Like the margaritas and the Mexican food were fun, but I don't want to feel like this every day. And then they get back on the pony and they're they're pretty good with that. Right. Right, exactly. And the the paleo foods that I've eaten are are delicious. They're really, you know, I think back to when I was a vegetarian myself, and the foods now are so much tastier. I just enjoy eating so much more now. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Like, it, you know, people get kind of uh, teary-eyed about losing pasta and stuff like that. And, you know, you still can do the marinara sauces. If you, if you play with the primal deal and you include a little bit of dairy or some cream, then you can do uh, – uh, you know, kind of kind of cream sauces, and you put that over spaghetti squash instead of spaghetti, or you mm-hmm. put it over a chefinated steamed uh, uh, cabbage or something. You know, I mean, pasta itself doesn't really taste like all that much. It's the sauce that you put on it. And so, you know, we'll have some very stonewalled people that they're like arms crossed and kind of being poopy pants about the, the potential transition, and we feed them some food, and they're like, oh, okay, this actually tastes really good. Like we, we fed some folks some... Uh, sushi that was made with uh, cauliflower rice. We did the paper and, you know, we we rolled it up and everything and did the gluten-free tamari sauce and all that, and they loved it, and it was great. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, they they, they totally loved it. And we'll we'll do, like, uh, you know, green curries and red curries and use the uh, the cauliflower rice with that and everything. I have some friends, really dear friends, that have an amazing cookbook coming out called Paleo Comfort Foods, and it's not released yet, but I've been pimping their stuff because they are (laughs) amazing. Like, I I literally, I was thinking about doing a cookbook, and then we went to Atlanta to hang out with these guys when I did a seminar, and they cook for us whenever we come to town, and their food was so good, I was just like, you guys need to do a cookbook. I'm not doing a cookbook because mine's going to suck compared to what you can do, and so you need to do it. And, like, their cookbook is in pre-sales right now, but it's doing really well, and they're they're releasing a few recipes here and there, and people are just going wild over it. So I, that I would is such highly a good idea. Yeah, that's such a good it's idea. Amazing. And you kind of pride yourself on being a good cook, so it must be pretty good if you think you can't even compare to it. I I, I can bang out some really good B plus A minus like meals <laughs> and really quickly, but their stuff is literally gourmet, and it's really funny because the uh, Charles is like a financial advisor who's also a strength coach. Jules is an epidemiologist who's also a strength coach. But they've just always been foodies. Both of them almost went to uh, culinary school. So, you know, they're, they're really, really good on that. They, uh, they can pretty thoroughly kick my fanny on cooking. Like, I'm good, but they are fantastic. Wow. Well, I couldn't even come close because I suck in the kitchen. But <laughs> that, that, that's, that's modern living. The only way that men 
date or marry modern women is that we cook. And so the, you, you're not supposed to know how to cook. That, that's how I met my wife. Like, I cooked for her. So, so don't make Yeah, every guy I've don't dated, they up. cook better than I do, I, I'd have to say. Yeah. But I'm yeah. trying. I just follow recipes to a T, and I'm good. I'm good. So I want to I want to take a step back for a second. You mentioned what the paleo diet is a little bit, but just if people missed it, what is it exactly? What does it not include? And um, you know, it, it leaves out a, a lot of foods that are commonly consumed in our culture that are pretty much the namesake of our food guide pyramid. So what's wrong with those foods, and what do they do? Well, you know, it, 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 if we want to look at it from an exclusion thing, then what we're pulling out are grains, legumes, and dairy in, in general. And here again, what we're what we're looking at, from my perspective, it's not a religious conversion. I'm not trying to create orthodox paleoites to go out there and, like, you know, create a jihad for, for some sort of change. <laughs> what I want to do is throw a concept out there so that people who are sick or people who want an opportunity to, to look, feel, and perform better, they can try this thing on just like it's a pair of jeans or a sweater and see if they like it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't like it. Maybe the return on investment isn't there. But, it, you know, my deal is let's just see if this works because we have thousands of testimonials from people reversing autoimmune diseases, stuff like Huntington's disease, things that are fatal diseases. And so my focus is trying to get a message out there that can save people's lives. It, it, at the end of the day, whether or not somebody's fanning looks good in a bikini, like it's kind of like, okay, that's great. We made a, a we took somebody whose who's hiney was a, an eight and we made it a 10. I guess that's doing God's work. Okay, that, that's fine. But but my deal is really oriented towards, you know, I encounter people every day. I have a backlog of emails that is a mile long that there are people who are sick and potentially dying because they're being told that there's no options for autoimmunity, there's no options for cancer, there's no options for a bunch of neurodegenerative diseases. So my deal is trying to get people to buy into that. So that's really, like, where, you know, my, my heart lies with all this stuff. So when, when I say this whole no grains, no legumes, no dairy, oftentimes, again, like I said, you know, people will cross their arms and be like, well, I, that, that's just ridiculous. You're cutting out a, a whole food group and stuff like that, <laughs> even though the people who say that oftentimes are vegetarian and they've already cut out a whole food group. So it's just kind of a, a funny deal. But, you know, something that I, I help or is helpful for people to kind of walk through this thing that, you know, when they're like, well, what do I eat, you know, under, under a circumstance like this? And, and I always ask, have you ever eaten an omelet with, say, like uh, uh, some, some smoked salmon in it and some fruit for breakfast ever in your life? And usually, usually the answer is yes. And then, you know, have you ever had some grilled steak on a salad with some uh, grilled veggies and maybe some uh, bubbly water with lemon juice in it for lunch? And inevitably, you know, it's like at some point somebody has had that some meal like that. And then for dinner, have you ever had either some, you know, some baked ribs or like some grilled fish bunch of grilled veggies, and a glass of red wine. Have you ever had that in your life for dinner? And obviously the answer to that is yes. And so the reality is that people have eaten thousands, possibly tens of thousands of, quote, paleo meals. They just haven't strung these things together. And, and so, you know, it's not that hard to eat this stuff. And, and yes, it is absolutely the, the grains, the legumes, the dairy, all this processed food are absolutely the base of the food pyramid, we eat more of the, the grains, particularly processed grains and kind of, you know, legume products and, and whatnot than what we've ever eaten in, in history. Well, it, let me back up a second. It, it, here's kind of an interesting thing. In the 1960s, 
uh, President Kennedy made a declaration that you know, there was a plan to send man to the moon and return him safely. And we, you know, the, the country rallied behind this. We spent a bunch of money on it, and we successfully sent man to the moon and returned it. A little bit later in the decade, uh, Richard Nixon declared a war on cancer. And then we've declared war on heart disease, and we've declared war on, on a, a number of interesting diseases. We spend more money each year than what we spent on the total space program to get man to the moon the first time, yet how successful are we in reversing cancer, diabetes, and heart disease? Right. We're not. We fail. We fail again and again and again. If this was analogous to the space program, it would be like we are trying to launch a rocket and it just explodes and destroys like a 200-square-mile radius. I mean, we dump more money into trying to solve these problems that are all lifestyle problems. You know, we, if you get past cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and the systemic inflammatory diseases associated with autoimmunity, then we don't have much of anything that's going to kill anyone until they're about 90 years old. And then, the, you know, they, they have like a, a two-week decline and they're, they're done. And they don't cost society anything. They have a much more, more full and, and uh, uh, enjoyable life. So when people are kind of wondering, well, you know, the government's telling me to do this. Well, the government made a declaration to send man to the moon once, and we were successful with that. The government's made a declaration that you should eat lots of grains, legumes, and dairy, and we are failing miserably on that. And, and my assertion is that if we were to look at evolutionary biology just a little bit and had an eye towards um, the fact that we evolved as hunter-gatherers and what the foods were that were available during that time and the fact that when we look at contemporary hunter-gatherers, they don't show the signs and symptoms of disease that we see. And it, it's got nothing to do with the fact that they live a shorter life. Like, they just don't experience these diseases until we start introducing the, these modern refined foods. Hmm. And, and so that's really, kind of, for me, that's kind of where the, the rubber hits the road with all this stuff. And, and so I, I'm, you know, I, I've taken much more of an economics argument to this thing with this idea about the space program and stuff like that. Like, it, we know more about cancer. We know more about heart disease. We know more about all of these diseases than we've ever known in history, but yet our dietary recommendations and our pharmaceutical interventions fail. Right. And so there's got to be a problem with that, you know, and it, it's yeah. not, there's not really, a, a, for me, some sort of hippie conspiracy to this thing. Like, you know, human physiology is pretty understandable. Uh, we don't know all of it by a mile. There's much more that we don't know than what we do know. But the null hypothesis here, if we have been pushing more Neolithic foods, more new foods that we've never been exposed to at people and they're getting sicker and less healthy, then maybe we need to try the, the other hypothesis, which is something that looks like an ancestral diet might be beneficial. And if you don't buy into evolution, if that doesn't sit well with you for like a, a moral or religious reasons, then I can build this whole argument simply from molecular biology up. I could start from digestion, track food going through your gut, track it through the, the, uh, uh, the whole metabolic machinery process, and arrive at exactly the same answer. So if you don't like evolution, fine, I'll, I'll sell you on this using molecular biology and biochemistry and biophysics to arrive at exactly the same spot. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, conventional medicine is so good at certain things. I mean, acute medicine, of course, if I break my leg, I'm going to go to the emergency room. I'm not going to go see a naturopath and have them, you know, rub herbs on my leg. And, you know, right. and... And in and, and diagnosis, I mean, conventional medicine is amazing at diagnosing conditions. Like you're saying, you know, they, they spend so much money on being able to learn so much about these diseases and detect them. But then 
once the diagnosis is made, so much is missed when it comes to treatment. You know, it's, it really goes back to the cause, what's causing these things. And that's why I love your book and your, your approach so much is because so much comes back to what are we fueling our body with? If we're creating inflammation and damage with every single meal, it's going to be setting us up for these diseases that are largely preventable and that are killing people. You know, the top causes of death are so preventable. Yes, and, and you know, if we were to marry the best elements of, of emergency medicine with what we understand about, you know, good evolutionary medicine, it, it, I talked to Professor Cordain maybe a, a two months, three months ago, and his kind of back-of-the-envelope estimation was that if we got people to supplement with vitamin D so that their vitamin D levels were, were you know, 50 to 65 nanograms per, per milliliter, which is a, a good good dose. If we got them to do that and we got people off of gluten, it's his opinion that longevity would go from about 75 years on average in the U.S. to 85 years, just boom, those, those two things. If you further pull grains, legumes, and dairy out of the diet, it's his estimation that you, you'd have an average lifespan of about 95 years. And you would see the characteristics in people that we see typical of most centenarians, most people who live to be 100 years, they're very fit, they're very active, they're cognitively like on. It's not a long downward spiral into the abyss. It, it, they tend to be very, very fit and healthy right up until the end. And if you think about that, like again, like if folks just want to sit inside and watch TV and, and eat the food that they want to eat, that, that's fine. That's, I am not, I'm not the person that's going to go like knock down your door trying to, to change your life. But if there are people out there that are just considering wow, I'm really sick and I've been trying the conventional medical approach again and again and again and it's just been failing. Like, keep in mind that theoretically, you know, the overarching element or the overarching guide within biology is this evolution be a natural selection kind of idea. And if you kind of get into that, then medicine and physiology are subdisciplines of biology. So similar to physics, you know, within physics, we've got Newtonian mechanics and we've got quantum mechanics and statistical mechanics and all these things describe the universe that we see. In medicine, they are not taught, medical practitioners are not taught evolution as a perspective when they are getting ready to practice medicine, but yet that is the foundational element to biology. Mm -hmm. And that just seems a huge failing, you know. If, if you don't, can, if, we would never think about this, like veterinarians are steeped in kind of evolutionary practice because you need to consider the, the, the biome, the area of evolution that an organism exists in. You know, cows eat grass, uh, koala bears eat eucalyptus leaves, uh, uh, swine are opportunistic omnivores, and that all matters for the medicine that you practice on the, these critters. And even if people are uncomfortable with this concept, we are an organism living on this planet, and we abide by the same rules and laws of biophysics that apply to everything else. At least I, I kind of, that, that's what sits well with me. I, I don't see that that really conflicts with any type of, like, religious or spiritual view. I, I see the two things existing copacetically with no problem. A lot of people don't see that. But, uh, you know, it's this thing, him, where, like, I feel like a lot of our medical practitioners are kind of operating in the dark, just dealing with symptomology and then trying to treat symptoms. And like you said, we, if we're just bouncing from symptom to symptom to symptom and we never address the underlying cause, then, you know, we suppress one symptom, the problem is still there. And now typically we create another problem because the suppression of the one symptom ends up causing another problem elsewhere. Like giving people uh, uh, antacids to deal with GERD when GERD is just a, a carbohydrate a, a overload and a, a grain intolerance. And then you give them antacids 
that suppresses uh, uh, signaling to, to produce stomach acid, and then that messes with downstream signaling for, like, bile salt release and, and absorption and digestion and the, the whole mess. Like, they just had a really damning report on, on antacids uh, out of JAMA, I believe, maybe about a week ago. And it's pretty interesting. Like, there's slowly some information percolating to the surface, but it, it's all retrospective. There's nothing prospective. There's nobody thinking about this at first order kind of kind of level, you know, like let's think about how we should, should you know, view this from like an evolutionary biology approach or, or something like that. Right, symptom to symptom to symptom, you know. They're not absorbing their minerals at that point, and then they get osteoporosis, and then we put them on Boniva, and then, you know, then they get all kinds of problems down south. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's madness is what it is. But I will say this, it's hard to make money off of healthy people. Yep. Like it, it, it just is, you know, it, when, when folks are sick and they're returning again and again and again, it, it, it's, yeah, people eating uh, uh, government-subsidized food, basically kind of corn derivatives and stuff like that. It, the only way that that system exists is through uh, uh, tax breaks and subsidies, which I, being pretty libertarian in character, it just absolutely kills me. And then, you know, you're feeding these people these bad foods, um, they get sick, then they get on the pharmaceutical roller coaster, and so we don't have sustainability because of the way we're producing our food, we're making people sick. It's super expensive from a healthcare and kind of a, a national like GDP kind of kind of standpoint, and it's just a, a lot of lost you know life. And uh, it, it's kind of kind of sad, but there is a reality. Like if everybody just like adopted a healthy lifestyle, I'd, I'd have to go farm coconuts or, or something like that. Like I, you know, no, nobody would need to buy my book or something, which. Really would be amazing, and I, I wouldn't mind farming coconuts in Nicaragua or something like that if, there, if that, that's what I had to do. But it's an interesting thing. Like, healthy people just don't cost society all that much, and they don't cost themselves all that much. Yeah, this is true. That's why you got to write a book about being healthy, and then, then you make your money, right? <laughs> but that's the theory, yeah. I had so many student loans from uh, doing my undergrad, my one my one whack of out-of-state naturopathy school that uh, – that that uh that took a pretty good bite out of a royal. I can tell you that. Yeah, multiply that by four, and you know how I'm doing, buddy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but it's a lot. You know, I could talk about this stuff all day. I would definitely want to make sure I touch on a few um, topics that are in your book. Oh, and also, actually, I don't even think I said the, the call-in number. So for those who just tuned in, um, we're talking to Rob Wolf, author of the author of the Paleo Solution. If you'd like to call and ask a question, I will take some calls, 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919, and just press 1 to ask a question. Um, and I have a bunch of Facebook questions we'll get to in a few minutes. Um, but let's talk about the foods that are eliminated from the paleo diet and what they do to, to our bodies. So you talked about taking grains out of the diet. What's so bad about grains? You know, both both grains and legumes, if we view them from this kind of biological perspective, almost, you know, pretty much everything either has teeth or nails or thorns or claws or chemical defense mechanisms or, or something. Like anything that is soft and squishy and undefensible and nutrient-dense gets eaten and it's gone, you know. And uh, so if we look at kind of the plant world, they kind of divide up roughly into kind of two, two camps. The uh, give a little, get a little camp, which I, I would put like berries and fruits and, and a lot of stuff in, in that camp in which uh, we get some nutrition from the organism, you know, say like blueberries, for example, that uh, the plant invests a bunch of energy into producing sugars and antioxidants and, and a, a tasty little little package. And when we eat that stuff, the seed is actually protected 
by anti-nutrients like phytates. It's got a little bit of cyanide in it. It can have some other things like saponins. It really kind of depends on what, what type of critter we're talking about. But the seeds, the reproductive structure, we don't digest. Most critters don't digest it. And the trade-off biologically in this give a little, get a little scenario is that I eat a banana, I eat a tomato, whatever, I, I uh, get some nutrients out of the, the organism from the, the fruit, and then I pass the seeds out in a warm, fertilized package, and hopefully that stuff sprouts and grows and there's a little reciprocity there. There are other organisms that, that use what I call the bugger-off method, you know, like thorns, cactus, uh, uh, really potent alkaloids, things like uh, uh, poison oak, poison ivy, that basically either have some sort of physical or chemical defense mechanisms that dissuade critters from eating them. And this is the story behind grains and legumes. They, grains and legumes, that, the part that we eat, that is the reproductive structure. And if we get in and look at what is in these, these uh, uh, structures, there are things like phytates, which are these organic acids that bind to calcium and magnesium and zinc and phosphorus. And it is the phytates, the phytic acid that, it, that we find in greens and legumes that we, tends to make high grain consuming cultures shorter. The Okinawans are about six to eight inches taller than mainland Japanese because the Okinawans' main carbohydrate source is kind of a starchy, nutrient-dense tuber, whereas the mainland Japanese eat rice. And the rice is loaded with phytates, even the white rice, and so it binds the calcium and magnesium and zinc and all these bone mineral matrix uh, uh, constituents, and so you don't have as much mineral elements available there to make bones, and so the people are shorter. If you go to uh, uh, France and Italy and you, you check out some of the, the uh, buildings that were constructed in the Middle Ages, the doorways are like four foot 11, you know, because people were eating unleavened bread, which was loaded with anti-nutrients, these phytates, which pulls calcium, magnesium, zinc, all, the, all these important minerals out of our system. That's one element. There are these other things called lectins, which are these cell surface recognition chemicals. Some lectins are, are completely benign there are some lectins that are actually beneficial, like banana leaf lectin actually has some activity against HIV-1. And then you have some other lectins like phytohemoglutinin from different beans, uh, uh, wheat germaglutinin from, from wheat and rye and, and stuff like that, that is very, very significantly damaging to the gut lining. And then uh, uh, everybody loves bringing up quinoa. Quinoa is a, a non-grain item, but it has uh, chemical defense mechanisms that are very, very similar to grains. It has saponins which is a soap-like structure that actually disrupts the, uh, the uh, cholesterol phospholipid bilayer in the gastrointestinal cells, and it can kind of punch holes through the intestinal lining. And so it, collectively what these constituents all do is damage the intestinal lining. And once the intestinal lining is damaged, and it's interesting, it damages the intestinal lining of everything from like locust to humans. It's evolutionarily conserved. These mechanisms are the same as pathogenic organisms trying to get into our body. There are ways that pathogenic organisms like E. coli and Shigella and stuff like that kind of get into our body. And these chemicals that are in grains and legumes use similar mechanisms to break down zonulin and, and, and break down the, the tight junctions in our gastrointestinal tract. And then that allows the intestinal contents to make its way into the body which leads to systemic inflammation, the potential for autoimmunity, and a host of other problems. So that's really what's going on with this stuff. And, and folks will kind of throw their hands up and they'll say, ah, that sounds kind of crazy. I mean, why, why would corn have these chemical defense mechanisms? 
because otherwise critters would eat them. There was a really funny piece. It was, I believe it was Monsanto or somebody like that that posted this thing. They were trying to get a low saponin quinoa, you know, a genetically modified low saponin quinoa, but the quinoa, whenever they would release it, you know, they'd grow it in these fields, they could not get any of the seed back. And, Laura, why do you, why do you think that? They couldn't get the seed back? Because yeah. there's the so defense they, mechanisms, right? So, yeah, and they, they, they had genetically removed the defense mechanisms from this quinoa. So because it wouldn't reproduce. No, it, repro- it could reproduce. Once you remove the chemical defense mechanism, what happens to it? If you remove the chemical birds defense mechanism, it dies. Yeah, then birds, birds, yeah, birds. other things can eat it then, critters. Yeah, then, then you have other critters that eat it. And so they, it was funny, Mon, you know, and I forget if it was Monsanto or who it was that wrote this up, but they were trying to make a low saponin quinoa with the, the understanding that the saponins are gut irritants. They're damaging to health, so let's make a low saponin quinoa. And when they tried to do that, when you remove the saponins from the quinoa, the birds just decimated it. And that's what's going to happen. You will remove the chemical defense mechanisms in there. And so what we what we find, particularly if you're you're a fan of say like the Weston Price camp and stuff like that, you find that historically uh, pastoralists and and agriculturalists have soaked and sprouted and, and done a whole you know retinue of different processing methods trying to decrease these these chemical irritants. And they certainly do decrease them, but they don't completely remove them. And that's part of the reason why. You know, the, the, I really like the Weston Price idea. I, I, there's a ton of people in that, that scene that I really dig. But, you know, that concept has been around a very, very long time relative to what paleo has. But we do not see the reversal in autoimmune diseases and systemic inflammatory diseases that we see when people do a grain, legume, dairy-free approach. And I, I would throw in additionally with that some other gut irritants like tomatoes, potatoes, nightshades, uh, uh, some, some nuts and seeds, and, and some other constituents that can be gut irritating also. But it's been this really robust knowledge of the uh, gut irritation potential that has allowed us to reverse things like multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, and it's why this concept has just kind of taken off and gone to the moon. So if you want to consume grains or legumes, and certainly soaking and sprouting them will decrease the, uh, the uh, gut irritating constituents, but it absolutely does not 100% remove them. So it's just kind of you know, buyer beware on that stuff. So if you're 100% healthy and you have no systemic inflammation and you seem to do great on that stuff, awesome. But I always kind of ask people, have you ever really pulled out that Ezekiel bread for 30 days to see how you look, feel, and perform? And ironically, when people take that additional step, they notice some improvements in digestive function, oftentimes very, very significant. Some people don't. Some people are fine. They're bulletproof. They're like Wolverine. You can drop them off a building and they break their arm. And, they, you know, I mean, they can eat anything. And that's fine, but it's a nice experiment of n equals one to just see how you reply or respond to that. Mm-hmm. Most people just don't know how good they could feel. I think that's what this provides for them. It's just, oh, I didn't know I could not have brain fog every day. I didn't know I could not have back pain. It's amazing. Yeah, and you know, when when you've been kind of sick your whole life, like I, I was pretty healthy as a teenager, but I always had that brain fog, and were may I, I, I can think of maybe six times my whole young adult life where I didn't feel like the world was kind of happening about eight feet away from me and my head was up with cotton and everything. And then it was the first time that I kind of ate low-carb paleo that I was like, oh, my God, this is how I could have been feeling my whole life. You know, the previous 26, 27 years, I could have felt like this. 
Right. So, yeah. That's so yeah. awesome. I'm going to take it to the phone lines. We have a caller here from the 513. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Oh, What's oh, your name? Oh, Thanks for calling hi. Dr. Low Radio. Where are you calling from? What's your oh, name? Thank you. I'm calling from Ohio, and hi. my name is Deborah. And um, I am suffering with eczema. And I've been on the web all day today researching uh, information, and a lot of it is talking about getting into the blue-green and the red algaes and um, things for digestive and everything. And for some reason, uh, the paleo diet popped up. And 10 years ago, I did the Atkins diet. And I honestly have to say, I felt my healthiest and most unbelievable it could have been because I was 10 years younger, too. But I wonder, does it, are they similar? Are the Atkins and Paleo diet very similar to each other? Well, they, they could be. I mean, Paleo, when you really look at it, we're, we don't typically re- restrict carbohydrates in folks unless, say, like they're a type 2 diabetic or they have significant systemic inflammation and they don't handle carbohydrate load very well. Um, so then you okay. might end up with something that we would call like a low-carb paleo. Uh, you know, but beyond that, you know, this is where we can kind of customize this. So if we have a hard-charging athlete, like we, we work with Olympic athletes. We have three three athletes that train at the Olympic Training Center. They absolutely do not eat a low-carb approach to this. But if I start working with somebody who has some serious systemic inflammation and some gastrointestinal problems, some dysbiosis where they have some kind of abnormal gut flora, then absolutely a period of time, like a month, maybe even two months, of a low-carb paleo-type approach will allow us to kind of kill off all the negative, like the gram-negative bacteria and some of the other nastier gut microbes that can be problematic. And then we can reintroduce carbohydrates on kind of a limited fashion, usually like yams and sweet potatoes, and then folks are not experiencing the systemic inflammation that they get out of grain and legume products. So, I mean, it, 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 it can be similar to Atkins, but it, it's not necessarily uh, the, the totality of it, for sure. And, and definitely what paleo is doing is trying to look at food quality first. I mean, ideally, we're doing grass-fed right. meat and wild-caught fish and organic vegetables and all that. But the interesting thing, though, I, I have the, these two rules that I have are a hippie, fail, a hippie excuse for failure, number one, which is that I can't find grass-fed meat, so I'll eat a bagel. False. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't work. Uh, a conventional meat is fine if you're out on the road and you're traveling. You just do the best you can with it. You do whatever veggies you can get. And that, that's the other thing, a hippie excuse for failure number two. I don't have my local CSA farmer market organic vegetables, so I'll eat a bowl of uh, rice checks or something. No, fail. That That's incorrect. Like, conventional meats, conventional fruits and vegetables are still better than the grain, legume, and dairy products. I, I don't care how organic they are or whatever. Ideally, from a sustainability standpoint and, and kind of a morality standpoint, I think that putting your money where your mouth is is smart, but it, it should not be a, an impediment to success trying to set the standard so high that you just fail. Right. Well, I'm I'm seriously thinking about doing it to see if it clears up the eczema um, uh, it, problem. It, it, if you Google Rob Wolf eczema, then you'll find probably four or five blog posts on people with testimonials about reversing eczema. Ex- a lot of this stuff relates to a, a uh, 
enzyme called transglutaminase, and transglutaminase modifies just about every protein in our body. And dermal transglutaminase, there's, there's eight different forms of it. I believe the, the isoform three and five are the ones that are involved with, like, eczema, psoriasis, and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's, uh, the etiology is pretty well understood, like how these diseases develop. The link back to things particularly like gluten is pretty well established. It's just kind of a matter of getting folks to, to give it a shot for 30 days. And, you know, is that is being healthy or convincing enough reason to give it a shot and see how you do? Yeah, well, I, and you know, um, I spoke to my sister about it earlier in the week because I had a breakout and I told her we almost had ourselves convinced that it was stress-related. That you know you have a stressful oh, it, event it, it, or something. Very, very well. No, it it could be stress related. This is an important thing to keep in mind. You may have a low level systemic inflammation caused by say like a grain intolerance that is just going all the time, and it whittles away at your energy. It, it makes your immune function less. You don't feel as good, but it is subclinical. It doesn't cause a flare. Then you miss some sleep or you have a stressful event. And then the cumulative effects of the stress may be the trigger. So stress is absolutely a, an element of this, but if you continue to, to have the, the gut irritant, the systemic irritant from the food, then, the, you know, it's just a matter of time. You're just kind of waiting between stressful events for something that's going to kick you over and kind of take you down to kneecaps. Wow. Okay. Well, and, and I, I take it that wheat can be another big uh, influence inflammatory product that is bad for the gut, too. Wheat is Satan's excrement, in my, my opinion. So, <laughs> Quote um, of the day, I mean, Rob. It, Quote it, of the day. It, it's, it's, it's delicious, <laughs> it's wonderful, it's tasty, and it will kill you. And, it, 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 you know, it, it, and I sound like a crazy guy, like I should be handing out tinfoil hats, welcome to Area 51, the, the aliens are coming, but... I, I just can't tell you how many people, if they simply cut this stuff out for 30 days, they're well. And then what you want to do from there is fine. It, 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 you know, I, we encounter, you know, we see people who smoke through a tracheotomy hole in their throat. And they have cancer yeah, and they have emphysema and the, and the smoking is real compelling. These foods are addictive. Grains, legumes, and dairy are addictive. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds are not addictive. You don't lay in bed at night dreaming about pork loin and peaches. You dream about little right. Debbie snack cakes and ice cream. And, and right. so that's where, like, if you're going to succeed, in my book, in my, my free uh, download, like on my, you don't even need to buy the book. I have all this information for free in my shopping and food guide and the frequently asked questions. Every bit of information you'd need for an autoimmune protocol, for a, a weight loss protocol, it's all there for free. What happens, people do the free version, get success, and then they go buy my book. So that that's kind of the interesting thing. Most of the people buying the book have already succeeded. Okay. But it, it's it's just a matter of buying in. And, and here here again is the deal. How important is it to you to be healthy 30 days from now? Is, is it compelling enough to ditch bread rice, you know, bread rice pasta, uh, uh, special K, you know, I mean, what, oh, whatever the, the you know the, the stuff is. Is it? Yeah. Yes, because I, I am tired of having the pain and the inflammation and the burning and, you know, um, it, yes. Like I said, I, I did the Atkins, and I was on Atkins for almost two years, and I just absolutely 
once you get on it, and it's the regimen, once you get on it and you realize how much better you feel, you know, and uh, the weight just tends to fall off, which I weigh 165 pounds, but I'm a very small body frame. So, you know, 20 pounds on me probably looks like, you know, 50 or 70 pounds on uh, a medium frame person. You know, so it's not even about, at this point, it's not even about the weight to me. It's about what is best for my body and getting rid. There, there is something that is causing my hands to literally break out in these blisters, to itch and, and get inflamed and red and and burn. And, and, you know, and I wear these white cotton gloves all the time, and I want to get away from that. And I'm willing to try anything. Well, in my opinion, 30 30 days from now, you could probably be free of that. And I mean, the the proof's in the pudding. Give it a shot and then uh, either ping uh, uh, the doc or ping me with an email and let me know, you know, good, bad, or ugly how it went. Yeah, I'm on your website right now, and um, I'm going to commit to it. Um, It's so cute. You've got got your, your website is adorable. (laughs) <laughs> oh, thanks. The, the, the cat's pretty cool. That's Keystone. He runs the whole operation. Oh, well, and I will. Uh, I, I followed, I marked as following um, this show, so I will definitely give it a try, and um, I will be your number one critic. <laughs> awesome. Thanks works. for calling in, Deborah. <laughs> Thank you. Tell me you're good. Have a great good, ugly, yep. Yeah, we'll 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 hear from you 30 days from now. You better give us an update. I sure will. I okay. sure will. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling in. Bye bye. Man, we are we are just flying through this time. It's amazing. I want to uh, get to a couple Facebook questions here, and then I have a few more questions for my uh, from myself. Um, this question is from Sarah Plum, and she wants to know. She said, I'd love to know the biochemical pathway that turns an acidic food like lemons into something alkalinizing. So many people talk about the benefits of, for example, putting lemon juice in your water, but nobody seems to be able to explain how the lemon juice has an alkalinizing effect apart from saying that it's the high mineral content. What do you think, Rob? Well, that's really kind of what it burns down to. If we end up with, say, like phosphorus as one of our our net items, which is a constituent in protein, then that tends to be a net acid load. We end up with like calcium, magnesium, zinc, and it tends to be kind of a net base load. I, I will say this. I think in general, the acid base story gets way overblown. Like it, to, to whatever degree it has metabolic significance, it is orders of magnitude below avoiding gut irritants, sleeping, getting some decent exercise, and all the rest of that stuff. And so, like, if you want to use a little balsamic vinegar, go for it. Knock yourself out. If you want to use a little salt, go for it. You know, if that's the difference between sticking with something that looks a little bit more paleo versus just going, you know, uh, hookers and cocaine wild on a, on a bunch of uh, bread and pasta, then use that other stuff. I, the, the, the science on the acid-base deal is just really dubious for me. And I, 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 we, we could get a, a Matt Lalonde, who's a Harvard PhD chemist. He, he's he's gone off on this topic on my podcast and elsewhere, but it's so explosively that it, it leaves a, a Hiroshima type crater from his response. So that, that's all I'll say on that. 
Okay, next question from Antonia. She she wants to know, um, please, anything to help with acne? I'm 21, and over the past three weeks, it's become worse than ever. It's so depressing, and I feel like a monster. I don't even want to look in the mirror. I used to be able to wear no makeup and be beautiful. Now I won't dare to leave the house without it. I don't know what's happening or what to do. Please help. You know, uh, uh, Professor Cordain wrote an e-book, The Dietary Cure for Acne, and, I mean, really what it boils down to is doing a paleo-type diet, remove grains, legumes, and dairy, balance omega-3, omega-6s, so supplement a little bit of fish oil, maybe two to three grams a day of fish oil, absolutely no dairy, like none. And then people will say, well, what about a little cream? None. What about some cheese? None. Like, I, I (laughs) I can't figure out how to say none more emphatically. Uh, we have seen just some really shockingly aggressive acne reverse when we, we change. It's basically the prostaglandin and leukotriene family of, of uh, uh, signaling you know, chemicals that are coming out of the omega-3, omega-6 pathway. Insulin can modify that, uh, omega-3, omega-6 fats. Vitamin D is really important in that, so make sure to take you, you know, about two to 5,000 IUs of vitamin D per day. I'll have one caveat in this. One person in about 50, one person in about 60, they will start doing a standard paleo approach, and they will actually get a little bit of acne. And for those people, they need to actually take about 15 milligrams a day of, of like, primrose oil or borage oil to get some GLA, some uh, gamma-linoleic acid. So occasionally, like, 150, 1 in 60, the person eats a standard kind of, you know, paleo-type approach. Everybody else, their acne improves. This one person that gets a little worse, we put a little bit of uh, GLA in them, some borage or primrose oil, bam, it's gone. But it, 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 the, it, whoever the scowl is, again, like if she goes grain, legume, dairy-free, take a little bit of fish oil, take some vitamin D, I will eat the biggest pile of roadkill you can find if you don't significantly improve your acne. Like I swear it will improve. You don't have to buy any potions or pills or anything other than buy some fish oil from somebody That's, and some vitamin D. Yeah, and that's that's exactly the approach I do with patients with acne as well. And just adding adding in just gut repair protocol, I find that really helpful as well. But acne is so not having to do with the skin. I mean, it's an inside out type of thing, and that's what people just really don't make that connection. Yeah, and they start blasting the skin with like benzoyl peroxide and all this stuff, and it just makes it worse. It dries it out, and yeah, it, it yeah. is not the direction to go. Gut gut health and omega threes and reduced systemic inflammation is where it starts. Mm-hmm, absolutely. This is a question from Taylor. He wants to know, I'd like to hear uh, Rob's eating principles for paleo-vegetarians. Many of my patients choose to maintain a veg- vegetarian diet. What are your thoughts? You know, it, to the degree that you can get them looking a lot more like the, the paleo stick, so, uh, you know, where we would normally have grains, legumes. And, and vegetarian is so nebulous these days. Like, I, do they eat fish? Do they eat dairy? Like, I, I, I don't know. So I'll assume vegan, and then we'll kind of work our way back from there. If you're vegan, then I would eat a lot of yams and sweet potatoes so that you minimize your fructose intake. I would be very moderate in your fruit intake. I know there are a lot of kind of fruitarian vegans out there, and I think it's a bad idea. You would be much better off doing a nutrient-dense starch source like yams and uh, sweet potatoes, lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, coconut products. Protein is going to be tough. I don't know. Maybe you do like a brown rice protein or something like that, but your frequency band on the type of foods that you have are super, super narrow. And I, I will tell you straight up right now, your results for body composition, for performance, et cetera, are going to be subpar relative to somebody including uh, fish, fowl, meat in the, the protocol. If you only eat fish, that's fine. You're, you're totally cool. If you only eat fish and chicken, that's fine. You don't need to do 
red meat. You don't have to do bigger uh, megafauna and all the rest of that stuff. You can totally pull this stuff off in a, a pescatarian kind of kind of mode or whatever. But basically, it's still the same deal. Pull the greens, legumes, and dairy out of the, the circulation. Focus more on nutrient-dense yams uh, or roots and tubers. Uh, seasonal um, vegetable matter, a little bit of seasonal fruit, going more for like uh, melons and maybe even some tropical fruit to minimize fructose load and to make sure that you're getting some sort of source of a, a long-chain uh, omega-3s like some, so if you do fish, then do fish oil. If you don't do fish, then do DHA from uh, uh, algae. And that, that's the way you modify it, as, as close to paleo as you can get, should minimize a lot of the, the downsides of the standard vegetarian approach. Okay, got it. One thing I notice with a lot of my vegetarian patients is they say, I'm hungry all the time. Even if I'm eating all the time, but I'm still hungry all the time. And one thing I love about your book is you really break down the biochemical processes in the body and why this happens. Um, mm -hmm. Someone who has a more grain-based diet, um, what is it about that biochemically that makes them hungry most of the time? You know, if, if you have gut irritation, then we have systemic inflammation. It, and there, that when we are under an inflammatory load, and, and you know this from, from doing medicine, if somebody suffers an acute trauma, say like they get hit by a bus, their mm -hmm. blood, their uh, uh, insulin sensitivity dramatically decreases because we are saving blood glucose for the brain. We could die if our blood sugar goes too low. So when we have a septic event, if we get exposed to a, a bacteria and, uh, it, you know, like a cut that goes septic, our blood sugar regulation will go out of, go out of whack. Our, our liver metabolism goes out of whack. We now understand that this process of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a direct outgrowth of gut irritation and systemic inflammation. So when you have systemic inflammation, the neuroregulation of appetite is gone. It's just gone. It's yeah. like your, your, uh, the fuel gauge on your car is broken. You're at a, a fueling station, and you're pumping gas into the car. The gas is full, but you're still pumping gas in because the regulatory mechanisms that communicate between your body and your brain saying, okay, I have enough nutrients, it's broken. And when you're inflamed, that process is broken. If you're eating grains, the likelihood for you to have systemic inflammation that can break that process is higher doesn't do it in everybody. It doesn't do it in everybody all the time. We tend to see this stuff become more pro problematic over the course of time. But when we feed people things like yams, sweet potatoes, fruit, it tends not to mess with the neuroregulation of appetite the same way that grains and legumes do. Now, if somebody's already sick and they're type 2 diabetic, then it, it's kind of, you know, they already have a lot of problems. And like the, the gal that said that she did Atkins, in a situation like that, we would actually do low-carb paleo until we reverse the signs and symptoms of metabolic arrangement, restored normal liver functioning, and then restored the neuroregulation of appetite, and then we would slowly titrate up the carbohydrate load for this person to meet what their needs are. Mm -hmm. Got it. I, I'm in love with your Chapter 3 in your book. I could have literally oh, just thanks. ripped it out. I could have dipped the entire chapter like in a big vat of like highlighter solution because it's pretty much all just yellow. Um, I wish I actually read this before going to naturopathic school because it, you, you just make the most complex things really easy to understand. You make it fun to read. So I just want to put that out there. I'm in love with it. And you also mentioned um, a particular hormone, and I was thinking you were going to touch on it, but just I wanted to make sure we, we do talk about it, is peptide YY and also just mm -hmm. some other satiety hormones. What, um, what type of diet helps to balance satiety hormones and what type of diet 
doesn't? And I'm, it's kind of a leading question, but go for it. Sure, sure. So, so a nice, dense whack of protein, like chicken or fish or eggs or something like that, releases a lot of PYY, releases cholecystokinin, it uh, regulates leptin signaling. These are all the hormones that are very intimately tied into the neuroregulation of appetite. If we have good PYY signaling, if we have good uh, cholecystokinin signaling, everything functions well, we feel full and satisfied. If we don't have good signaling, then we've got some problems. So protein releases a ton of satiety uh, neurotransmitter-type hormones. Fat releases quite a bit, but not as much typically as protein. Carbohydrate releases significantly less, and in some people, it actually does not stimulate the satiety signal at all. That's just as a baseline, just looking at macronutrients, you know, like starch, protein, fat, just, just kind of across the board. When you add to that picture the potential of systemic inflammation coming from, like, grain intolerance or legume intolerance or something like that, then we've got a whole other layer of complexity because if the gut lining is damaged, then the norm, normal neuroregulation of appetite doesn't occur. Cholecystokinin uh, signaling doesn't happen, and this is a, a basically the etiology of, of gallbladder disease related to gluten intolerance. Like everybody who's had their gallbladder removed, you're gluten intolerant. You should have been put on a gluten-free diet. You shouldn't have had your gallbladder removed as right. just kind of an example. But this is where we could construct a very satiating meal, which would be a good whack of protein, a little bit of fat, or maybe a lot of fat, depending on where you're, if you're real active or something, and then a lot of veggies, maybe a, a little bit of fruit. But it's mainly some protein, good amount of fat to kind of balance that out, and then tons and tons of low glycemic load uh, carbohydrates from vegetables. If we wanted a very non-satiating meal, then we would have something loaded with fructose, we'd have something loaded with carbohydrate, we'd have something loaded with gut irritation, and, you know, like a, a you know, high fructose corn syrup sweetened bagel or donut or something like that is it, just about like the, the most magical thing you could think of for, you know, spinning you out and getting you into that, that uh, uh, blood sugar crashing roller coaster kind of scenario where you eat a meal, and immediately upon finishing the meal, you feel hungry, and particularly for carbohydrate, and that's, that's where we've got a problem. You can construct two different types of meals. One meal would be, you know, like a, let's say a breakfast, and it's a four-egg omelet, maybe a couple of strips of bacon, some avocado, uh, some blueberries, and a little bit of coffee. And, and the, the protein and the coffee both release dopamine. Dopamine's the neurotransmitter that makes us feel in love, so we could make the argument the protein and coffee are love. So that, that's <laughs> one, one thing that you... You eat this meal, and if you check in with somebody uh, two hours later and you ask them, how are you feeling, are you hungry, and typically they're like, no, I feel pretty good. You know, like cognition is good, everything's good, all the cylinders are firing. Let's say this person is a cop or a firefighter, and they get called out on some sort of accident or something, and they can't eat for eight hours. How are they feeling at that eight-hour mark? And typically they're going to say they're hungry, but because it was hormonally balanced, we, we didn't spike insulin too much, we didn't cause a bunch of systemic inflammation, people are able to access body fat for energy, they're able to release a little bit of glucagon to keep blood glucose levels high, and we don't get a blood sugar crash. Like, the person is probably hungry, but they're functional. If we do, like, the standard American Dietetics Association, you know, breakfast, which would be, like, a hunk of, you know, steel-cut rolled oats or, and, uh, you know, some... some uh, what's the, the hippie sweetener of choice right now, like agave? Oh, agave, like yeah. That. You, you know, agave seems to be the, the one, even though agave is mainly fructose, so it, it's, right. you know, uh, Satan's excrement part two. You've got <laughs> wheat, 
fructose and uh, linoleic acid, which is which is short chain of omega six fats. That, those are all in the Satan's excrement category. But you know, you do this other meal, you have a glass of juice with it, because obviously everybody needs juice. How, how would you live without that? And then for protein, maybe we have a, a two-egg white omelet because if you ate the yolk, you'd keel over and die from, from cholesterol immediately. But eat this other meal and you ask people, how are you feeling two hours later? And typically they're hungry. And you ask them, you know, we do the same scenario of like the cop or the, the firefighter. Six hours later, they haven't been able to eat. And this person is like ready to black out. Like they are just augering into the deck. And it's because they had a huge blood sugar spike. They had this inflammatory kind of response and they can't access body fat for energy when the, when the uh, blood sugar crashes. Uh, the only thing that's going to bring blood sugar back up is a release of cortisol. Cortisol is a whole – there's a whole show, you know, devoted just to the, the effects of uh, cortisol, but then that's where we start getting into this blood sugar roller coaster. So you have two very simple meals. If you construct an a intelligently uh, put-together meal – you should be able to go five or six hours between meals and not be hungry. And it's not to say that you do that all the time, but you could. A poorly mm-hmm. constructed meal, you are hungry within a, you know, an hour, two hours, and you, you start getting really ravenous if you're forced to go a long period of time. Because we should be able to access body fat for energy. We should be able to fast for a day or two days without it completely destroying us. And most people will go into like a peri-diabetic coma if you make them fast for like 12 to 18 hours. And that right. is a clear indication that their metabolic machinery is just broken. Mm-hmm. How did cavemen do it? They didn't walk around with their Ziploc bags of carrots and their trail mix, and they went for a while without eating. They, they didn't. If, if folks keep their eyes open uh, uh, TV around September, you're going to see me in a, kind of an experimental scene like that, and that, that's about all I can say, but it's going to be really interesting. Very cool. Rob, do you have time for one more question before, or one more call oh. before I let you go? Totally, totally. Awesome. Okay, caller from the, let's see if my switchboard's working. Caller from the 623, are you there? Yes. Hi, thanks for calling in, Dr. Low Radio. Yep, that's you. We can hear you. Hi. What's your name and where are you calling from? (laughs) Um, Stephanie from Surprise, Arizona. Awesome. I had a question about, what's that? No, go for it. Um, About wheatgrass. I thought I was paleo for about the uh, last six months, but I'm learning a lot listening, and now I'm wondering what your thoughts are on wheatgrass. Is it a vegetable or is it wheat? Well, you know, it does seem like some people have some cross-reactivity with it. I mean, it's super cool because it's loaded with, like, superoxide dismutase. It's a really good antioxidant source and stuff like that. I would just I, – I would tinker with it. Like, I would pull it out of rotation – see how you do, you know, give it a good two weeks to three weeks, reintroduce it, see if you have any type of, like, GI distress or, or anything. I'm not a huge fan of wheatgrass. Like, if you're going to do a, a big dose of greens, it gets tough, though, you know, because the bigger, more robust greens, like like spinach or col- collard or, or chard and stuff like that, it's got a lot of oxalic acid. You can have a little bit of problems from doing a ton of that, but... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool stuff. It has some good elements to it, but there are some powdered juice extracts that are low-carbohydrate, and they're also grain-free. I I can't think of any of them off the the top of my head. But, yeah, it it makes me a little nervous. Okay. All right, that's interesting. So I'll try to take it out and see what happens, because I've been doing that for a while, Um 
and, you know, doing the whole green drink and juicing. I was raw before I was paleo, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's always, it's, I think, helpful to keep in mind that uh, the juicing deal is pretty cool, but you are ingesting amounts of a, a fruit or vegetable that we would never normally physiologically get that much stuff in us. And there's some interesting data on even just like excessive antioxidant intake. You know, obviously we want some antioxidants in our system, but there's this process called hysteresis, which is a, a, an adaptive element of, of stress inoculation, like basically being exposed to stress. If we dose people up on mega doses of anti-inflammatories or antioxidants before exercise, we can almost completely block the beneficial adaptations, even down to the, the genetic signaling level of exercise. So this deal of taking in mega doses of like juice and stuff like that, I've always been just kind of a little bit, eh, I'm not too sure about it. And the more time that goes on, I'm, I'm less and less and less impressed with it as kind of a, a concept. And it's exactly the same reason why I don't recommend uh, high-dose multivitamins for folks. Like if you do any type of supplementation, something like a, a new chapter or something that's at or about food grade levels of nutrients is kind of the way I'd steer the boat unless, say like you're working with Dr. Laura and and she's, you know, uh, diagnosed a specific nutrient deficiency, you've had GI problems for ages, you haven't absorbed nutrients, you know, since like the Reagan era and stuff like that, then you're going to benefit from some, some high dose supplementation. But it's a very specific situation and it should be managed, in my opinion, by a healthcare practitioner. So in general, that's why I, I'm not a big fan of supplements. I could make a truckload of money selling supplements off my website, and I, I will probably bring out some sort of a limited scene, but you will probably never see me offer a multivitamin um, because of the amounts and the ratios of, of things that are occurring. They don't emulate what we see in food at all. And, and I think on, uh, you know, like elevated uh, uh, folic acid intake, we, we now know for sure that it's a, a problem for breast, colon, and prostate cancers, possibly like astrocyte, brain tumors, and glioblastomas also, because we, we have that uh, uh, tetrahydrofolate uh, reductase enzyme that is very tied into methylating DNA, turning DNA on and off, and it's tied into uh, uh, folate. Normally in food, we get folate. In supplements, we get folic acid. When people take a supplement, they overwhelm their system with levels of, of folate and folic acid, that has never been seen in the history of evolution. It's never been seen before, and I think that there's some really cryptic elements to that that are not good for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And sorry, that was a whole lot that's more than really, what I asked for originally, but that, 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 no, that's, that's where that's my brain went with it. It's a lot of good information because I guess I've been addicted to the juices instead of the bread. So, you know, it's uh, replacing one thing with another. You know, and it's just something to play with. Like, if, if it's working for you, and, you know, from a little bit of a Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic kind of deal, if you're living in Arizona and it's hot and dry, then some juicing is kind of like, oh, okay, maybe we're, maybe we're kind of appropriate here, you know, because we're, we're in a super hot, dry environment. If you're doing it in Seattle, I think you're a moron. You know, <laughs> we've got horrible, horrible things brewing for that. If, if there was a person, a situation like the desert southwest and you want to do some juicing or you're going to really focus on, like, you know, berries and melons as your main carbohydrate source in this kind of Ayurvedic Chinese medicine five-element kind of deal, I get that. Like, and they, I think that that makes some, some sense. But I would just tinker with it, 
I would do a little bit of tinkering and, and try to steer the boat as close to whole food as you can. That, that's just my, my general gig. Like try to do whole food, you know, as much as you can, then tinker from there. And if it's beneficial, like if you're just, you know, crushing things on your juicing regimen, go for it. But I would just tinker towards the whole food first. Okay. Thank you. Totally. Thanks for my, calling my pleasure. in. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Good answer. I just like to listen to you talk. It's just like, it's just brain candy, Rob. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. You're super good for my ego. Thank you. <laughs> try to be. I try to be. Um, I think that's probably it for our time. Um, my last question is, what did you eat today? I'm just curious for myself. You know, today I actually uh, went with my wife to Albuquerque, and we stopped at a restaurant called Wex which they have a gluten-free menu, and I ordered an omelet that had some bacon and some bell peppers and some mushrooms in it, and uh, they actually had some uh, uh, claimed to be gluten-free uh, sweet potato kind of hash brown kind of gig, and so I had a little bit of that, and it was really good. And, and literally that was the only thing I had until I went and worked out, and then I had a couple of handfuls of cherries, and I had cooked uh, last night a... Uh, grass-fed beef shoulder in a bunch of uh, a typical New Mexican uh, green chili sauce, and I cooked it in a slow cooker for about 12 hours, and it is so good it will make you cry. It was absolutely amazing. And then when I wrap up the call, then I think I'm going to make some gingered salmon and steam some uh, spinach, and then our CSA gave us about eight pounds of uh, Roma tomatoes. So I'm going to slice those up really thin, drizzle some olive oil and some balsamic vinegar on it, and that's going to be dinner. And then my wife and I are going to watch uh, a couple episodes of True Blood on next Netflix, and that's going to be the day. Our, Sounds like a perfect day. Little, it's our guilty little uh, deal. Uh, uh, we are completely and totally addicted to True Blood. So there you have it. I love it. That sounds delicious. Do you have any uh, recipes on your website? Tons of recipes. If folks go to the, the website and they hit the, the blog roll and they just click the, the different uh, features there, uh, it, you know, recipes is one of them. Uh, I have good friends, you know, like uh, Diane Sanfilippo at Balance Bites. She has tons and tons of recipes. Sarah Fergoso at Everyday Paleo, tons of recipes. Again, my, my good friends at uh, uh, Paleo Comfort Foods, they, they're releasing recipes. They've got videos. They've got recipe cards. Um, and there's a bunch of other stuff. Like there are some folks doing a recipe of the day. Uh, God, I'm, I, I feel terrible. I, I forget. But they, they post all the time to my Facebook page. And so if you get on their Facebook feed, uh, they post a recipe of the day every single day. But there's some amazing folks out there doing great recipes. Awesome. i got to check that out for sure. Any other uh, parting words for our listeners before I let you go? Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I was super nervous. Uh, huge, huge honor being on the show. And, you know, I, I guess if I could ask folks to do anything is, is please, you know, give this stuff a shot. Uh, give, it a, give it a go for 30 days. Go grain, legume, dairy-free. Really try this paleo approach. And then please tell me what your experience is. Like the way that this whole process grows is by the feedback that I get from people and how things work or how things don't work so well, and that's how I refine the message and, and get this stuff to grow. And, and there again, like, um, you know, I really, really, really wish that everybody would give paleo a shot, but that said, um, you know, I definitely don't want to see it become a religion. I don't want people to feel bad if they don't feel like they're eating, like, orthodox paleo or whatever. This is 100% about helping your life to be better. 
And so, like, if the way that you're eating and the way you're doing things, you feel great and you try on this paleo deal and you, you are obsessing over it and it's making you neurotic and everything, ditch it. it. It should only be there to make your life better. It should not be there to create food neuroses or make you feel bad about yourself or anything. This is just my, my offering to try to help people who are sick or maybe uh, want to look, feel, and perform better. And so the, to the degree it does that, and that's great, and to the degree it's an impediment to you living a better life, then can it and do something else. That, that, that's my only goal with this is that it helps people and improves their life. I love it. Keep an open mind always. I Absolutely. That. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Where can listeners learn more about you, and where can they get your book? Uh, rockwolf.com we've got recipes podcasts video uh, there's a great forum there with a bunch of really really good moderators floating around on it uh, they can get the book almost anywhere like Barnes & Noble Borders uh, Amazon.com you order it off my website and I get a little little slice of that which is always nice so uh, uh, you, you can track the, the book down almost anywhere it is available on Kindle iBooks, Google Books, it's available on like like five or six different uh, electronic formats. Very cool. Any events coming up? I know you do some some, uh, seminars too, right? You know, I I have one final Paleo Solution seminar, which is going to happen in August, uh, on August 20th in Boston. And then I'm putting that seminar series to bed because we're actually going to start doing a dedicated continuing medical education program for physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, basically all allied health professionals. So we're going through all the hoop jumping currently to get uh, ACCME accredited and doing all that stuff. And so we're going to be cracking open a a whole medical professional kind of kind of orientation. I, I had kind of an epiphany lot, maybe four weeks ago, three weeks ago, that uh, uh, the next Steps that I need to do. I, instead of talking to the already converted, I need to go out among the people who don't want to hear me and are probably going to be really antagonistic <laughs> to what I'm saying and and try to take this message to them and, and get a little bit of buy-in because a, an average doctor sees anywhere from like 25 to 100 patients a day. You know, average MD or, or DO or whatever. And I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I assume that it's the indie. Uh, patient load is probably less because you guys take a lot more time doing intakes and stuff like that. But it, it, the bottom line is like this uh, seminar that I'm doing in Boston, we'll probably have 100, 150 people there or something like that, which is super cool. We'll help some people, but they're largely already bought in, like this taking the message to the medical community. Right. Um, we could affect so much more change. If we could get 10,000 MDs, DOs into this, amazing change in the allopathic side. If we could get 10,000, you know, uh, uh, NDs and, uh, uh, you know, chiros and, and the, some of the alternative side of things involved in this, you know, you think about kind of the homeopathic dilution, the homeopathic dose, we're there. Mm-hmm. Like we could we could change things. And when we wrap that back around, you know, it, I, sorry, I keep jabbering on here. It's like I'm no, on I love it. Go for it. Thing, but uh uh, I am one of the biggest features of the website that has been growing is the, the Liberty Garden, and that was an idea of basically trying to create community and understanding around local sustainable permaculture, around CSAs and farmers markets, and that's a huge part of the website that I'm really going to focus a lot of effort on in addition to the medical education side. But I see these things as kind of bracketing the world that, that we need to address. We need to address our food sources, our sustainability, the whole deal, and we need to put real concerted effort into that, and we need to put our money there and support 
decentralized local uh, farms and CFAs and farmers markets and, and permaculture. And then from there, we start securing a food supply that then when we have an educated populace, they will, they will then, you know, patronize these people who are growing high-quality, sustainable food in ways that we could still be here 500 years from now and they're still growing the food in the same way. It's still sustainable. We're not damaging uh, uh, downstream resources. And then on the outside edge of it are our medical gatekeepers that we go to when we are in need for, for medical attention. And if we bracket this whole thing and we get some degree of buy-in, like it, having been in this since 1998, like it, it's just shocking the change that the world has gone through with regard to this paleo kind of evolutionary biology approach. But if we get a little bit more push, if we get a little bit more buy-in, if we have more people believing in permaculture and taking responsibility for our own health, in uh, seeking out medical practitioners that believe in, in treating the cause and not the symptoms, we're going to transform the world. And it, it, you know, I don't want to sound too pie-in-the-sky like goofy, but I've just seen so much good happen already that with a little bit more nudge, a little bit more push, the transformation can really be amazing and, and save a lot of lives, improve a lot of, a lot of our lives. So I, I, I guess that's my, my whole gig. Yeah, I 100% agree. In any way that I can be involved in that movement, you just let me know, and I'm fully, fully supportive of that. Awesome, awesome. You, you are my doc. You are now my doctor. So <laughs> I'm going to quote you on You're that, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rob. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I look forward to talking more with you. Huge honor being on the show. Thank you. And anytime you want me to come back and and uh, blab for an hour, I, I would love to do it. We'll do it for sure. Thanks again. Have a great night. Awesome, Doc. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. That was a great show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate all the calls, all the twits. Is that, is that even a word? Tweets, I guess. Um, Facebook comments. And um, I just really appreciate everyone who's been so supportive of uh, promoting the show. It's, it was a really good turnout, a lot of listens. And I, I just am very, very um, grateful for all of you guys being on board with this. Um, so definitely check out Rob's book. I love this book, you guys. I don't care if you're general public, if you are um, doctors, Whoever you are, read this book. It's a fabulous book. It really is a great read. It's fun to read, and you'll learn a lot from it. So check it out, The Paleo Solution. Check out Rob's um, website, paleo, or excuse me, robwolf.com. Um, next week's show will be just as awesome as this one. I definitely expect that. Dr. Sherry Tenpenny will be on the show to talk all about vaccinations. Very controversial topic. Already taking questions about that. Go to my website, drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com. And uh, submit your questions, and we will definitely get those on the air. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. I will check you guys next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. 
North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.